Talks. It's about things that interest technologists. Uh, we're your co-hosts. I'm Brian Jackson, and joining me is Brian Demers. Thanks. And joining us this week is our guest, Jason Huggins. Hello. Hi, Jason. Thanks for joining us. So for our listeners, uh, if you're new, uh, our show is broken into three segments. We first talk about uh, topical in-the-news stuff for uh, things that would interest folks in the DevOps space. Then we'll dive into a deeper interview with Jason. And after that, we will uh, leave you with something to do until next week. So our first segment is about current events, and we call it In the News. Uh, we each are going to pick one story and that we read recently, and we'd like to discuss. Uh, Brian, uh, why don't you go first? What's your programming news? Yeah, so Google just released the 1.0 version of TensorFlow. So it's all based around, um, so those who are not familiar with, with the project, it's all based around machine learning and, and uh, computer vision and, and those types of things. Um, so it's really interesting to see how Google is is sharing this with everybody, and and you know obviously it, it I think it fits well into their their platform, you know their devices, uh, cloud, all, all the stuff that they're doing. Um, it's it's pretty interesting. So uh, I don't know, Brian, have you looked into this at all? Yeah, yeah, we were actually interested in um, you know doing and using this type of uh, neural network type of training um, in uh, some of my previous. Uh, jobs and this is really something that i'm interested in in the fact that the google has put so much kind of of their weight behind this adoption uh this news that the 1.0 release came out of the developer summit the tensorflow developer summit so they've had a dedicated um summit and conference uh, about this and so it seems very interesting uh you know what they're trying to do um with uh, you know, using GPUs and whatnot to do like neural network uh, training and, and execution and then having that apply to anywhere from, you know, large applications to, you know, object detection in an Android app. So, um, Jason, uh, but kind of tell us, give me, give me your perspective uh, with your uh, experience. Right. Uh, so I was looking up some of these links as you're, as you're talking. Um, so, um I, you know, I've seen all like the crazy demos where it's like they have a video feed and they, they do like live tagging. Like, I mean, I, I get uh, all of the, you know, all the vid all the videos are impressive, right? Um, uh, but I kind of uh, ignored it in the sense it didn't really see like a, a direct application to what I what I've been working on. Uh, but uh, about a year ago, I was reading. I'll get to a point very quickly, hopefully. <laughs> uh, so one of my favorite authors is is uh, Brian. Kevin Kelly, Kevin Kelly, and uh, he was writing about um, uh, one of the kind of precursors to TensorFlow. Uh, Google acquired um, a company called DeepMind, and mm. Kevin Kelly was going, he was waxing very poetic about you know um, how DeepMind is going to you know it's going to cure cancer, it's going to take all the jobs, it's going to be the you know it, it just like it, the breathless hype about all of this stuff. So I, I kind of put the book down and said, okay, I need to read. Um, I, I just I wanted to get beyond the hype and kind of find out a little bit about it. So I actually sure. went back and found the original DeepMind paper where they talk of where they have uh, the very famous example is where they um, 
they train it to play various Atari 2600 games. Yeah. Uh, and the amazing kind of conclusion that kind of spooked everybody was that they trained it and it played uh, Breakout very, very well. But then un- without any changes at all, they, they swapped in other games and it was able to play those games too. And that's what's huh. like, oh my gosh, that's where everyone got like the goosebumps and you know, like, yeah. oh my gosh, the singularity is near, right? So, but I dove deeper and um, they actually stack rank like, you know, 50 or so games on how well the AI was able to play the game. And uh, way at the bottom of the list, so at the top of the list is Breakout and a couple other ones, um, or Super Breakout or whatever. At the bottom of the list was the game Pitfall. And that was, that's where um, I, um, I thought this was really interesting. Uh, the game Pitfall, it's really, um, compared to Breakout, it's very hard to tell what is the correct next move. You could mm. go left or right in a bunch of different sequences. Same thing with like Legend of Zelda or something like that, where right. you won't really know what the correct action was until you're like 100 actions down versus Breakout, where you instantly either hit the ball or miss the ball. And if you, it goes to the top of the screen, you either get a point or you don't. So out of all of the stuff where all of this is going, uh, these uh, deep learning algorithms are really good at things where there's a very immediate uh, cause and effect, more specifically kind of like a, you know, a reward for some action. But where things are kind of vague, uh, it's not any better than a human, or it's actually worse than a human is figuring out um, where to go. So where this kind of applies to like where, you know, where my head is at and where my field is, it's like where my background is testing and how do you, you know, interact with a web application. It's actually more like pitfall than it is breakout where like you can enter text into a field or click various buttons and the workflow you know, you know, the end result is either to buy something or log out or whatever. It's kind of nebulous. There's no immediate feedback. Um, so anyway, so I'm trying to triangulate all this open AI stuff to how this would be helpful for testing. I got to kind of a place where I think you can't just run the computers amok on a bunch of websites and it'll, you know, magically figure out how to test all this stuff. I think you're going to have to, you know, combine it with uh, human, like, training data, if you will. Um, like following humans going through and then maybe figure out that stuff. Anyway, so like it's interesting going back to that original DeepMind uh, uh, essay and kind of diving in. It gets beyond the hype, beyond all of the articles that are written about all this stuff and you can kind of get into where uh, it's either good or bad. I, I, th- I picked this up, something up a couple of years ago where uh, don't trust anybody's opinion about any technology until you can tell them three things that suck about it. Um, because that that certain that kind of you know speaks that somehow they're able to you know not just breathlessly talk about all the hypey points, but can actually have used it a little bit perhaps and can kind of know where the boundaries of that stuff is. And sometimes, mostly, I feel like in most AI articles that I've read, it's all breathless hype. And uh, other than it'll take all our jobs, <laughs> I have right. read a lot of people kind of like intelligently talk about like where like the technical limits of what that could be used for or not used for anyway that's my rant and my ramble on that on that stuff no i i that was awesome i love the 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 three things that suck metric for new technology uh i am totally going to be using that um i i don't think i've ever heard it as succinctly as that so (laughs) i'm now uh slowly worried that it's going to come up later in the show (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah, no, that, but that's, that's a, that's a really cool, um, you know, analysis of this. I think that the, uh, there, there is a lot of potential and a lot of hype. Uh, I mean, clearly with the amount of, uh, effort and, and resources that Google's putting behind it. Um, but Google being quite, uh, infamous for, uh, you know, just abandoning things. Uh, so hopefully this is not one of those, but 
we shall see. All right, so uh, moving on to our next story. Uh, Jason, uh, what did you want to talk about? Right. Um, so I saw something that came up today. Uh, Microsoft, let's see if I can find the browser link here. I know I posted it around, but um, they have this uh, simulator for uh, testing drones. Um, so instead of having to fly a real uh, drone aircraft around, it's a flight simulator for that, but um, not just any old flight simulator. Like they, they really try to put a lot of uh, real world physics in there. Um, and uh, actually kind of follows from the previous story in the sense of like, it, you can't, it, you could use it not just as a simulator, but you could also turn on a record mode and then use that as training data um, for whatever flying algorithms you might be trying to create. Um, and the reason why I thought, I think this is interesting because uh, again, going back to my testing background that I'm alluding to, I, I feel like there's actually kind of two kind of end games for uh, kind of where test where the testing, how, how all this technology has to be tested somehow. And I think there's like two ends of a spectrum. And this, this, uh, this new tool for Microsoft kind of like definitely lives at one extreme end of the spectrum. And, and the two ends of the spectrum that I see in my mind are uh, when you have all the stuff like robots and you know, internet of things, you know, smartwatches, like phones, just everything, right? Um, you can test it in a perfect simulator, but that simulator is so good. It's basically the matrix. Like yeah. the, the, the end goal is to have a virtual reality that is so lifelike that you don't even know that you're in it. Uh, and that's only when, that's when you can test the interactions be, between various things. So like when I turn on the Wi-Fi, you know, how does that affect my microwave or whatever, right? Like no one has made a video game uh, to that level of accuracy that right. like, when you turn on your microwave, it messes up your phone signal or something. And so it's interesting with this Microsoft tool, they're basically kind of, you know, level up to that next level of kind of video game slash virtual reality where you can use it as a virtual training environment for stuff you're building in the real world. And then at the other end of the spectrum, again, kind of like technology dystopias, I guess, um, you basically have the Terminator. <laughs> you want something that is as lifelike as possible to the point where humans can't even tell the difference between it and a human. And then in that sense, you can use that to to do real world testing or, you know, um, you're going to have them you know, be passengers in a self-driving car or, you know, trying under new watches or whatever kind of testing scenario, you're going to want an exactly, you know, exact replica of a human as possible. So anyway, so I, yeah. for a while, I've actually been th going down this theory of, you know, I'm personally working on the Terminator robot side of things. So right. I thought it was actually too hard to build that whole simulator uh, world. And then here we are, Microsoft kind of at least re releases their, uh, their attempt at this for, um, uh, for drones. So, um, you know, anyway, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm definitely watching that with interest. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's really wild. I mean, I think that um, uh, just talking about the stuff that you've created that I've used, uh, you know, you've got things like uh, Sauce Labs and the Appium support of doing the the matrix, trying to simulate stuff to the what you're doing at Tapster, uh, Tapster now with uh, robots. So it seems like you've actually had your hands kind of on both sides of the spectrum. Um, so that's really cool. Yes, this is cool too. I know I played with a couple of flight simulators a while ago about uh, trying to figure out how to fly, like uh, you know, model aircraft planes. Yeah, uh, and that's about as far as I went. I was like, oh, this is going to be really hard, and I have other projects I want to work on. Uh, but I, I mean, I do have this little drone, right? And uh, it'd be really cool to see uh, to check this out. Um, you know, both both for the the programming aspect, right, like the recording and then the playback, and then. Um, Hopefully, uh, 
you know, kids and stuff could be interested in, in, in doing the, these types of things too. And I can see a lot of a potential gamification around this. Right. Yeah. Right. I also just, I think there's a lot of people that, um, uh, I guess I'll either confirm or deny that I'm one of these people, but you know, <laughs> that, you know, that read the FAA regs when they came out as far as like the, when they put, uh, promulgated, I guess is the $5 word, for uh, the new rules for yeah. drone-based businesses and what you're allowed and not allowed to do. Um, and I think there's some people that are kind of, uh, you know, waiting the wings, like doing it in places, maybe, you know, of course, they, everyone should do it officially regulated. But uh, sometimes, like, uh, if you want to, you know, roll out a, uh, you know, cookie delivery or donut delivery or coffee delivery <laughs> or taco delivery, taco copter, I think that was the first time I heard about this stuff, as you're waiting for it to either be feasible or technically legal for whatever you're trying to do, I think you can kind of run some of this stuff uh, to test out the feasibility of whatever you're run, trying to work on in some of these simulators. Um, so that's, an, anyway, it's interesting to me. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm just fascinated with at what level this, this we can take this real world simulation down to at this point, um, you know, with, with current hardware. You know, are, is it down to the actually simulating fluid dynamics of, uh, you know, the the rotors that are on the quadcopters in this virtual simulation or is it um you know is it at a higher level of abstraction than that um it's it's really fascinating to me um you know because i had i'd used uh, microsoft flight simulator and x flight um back in the day uh, also uh, some dabbled in it for you know using uh, training for uh, flying rc planes and it's always been something that's really fascinating to me um, and to take this and apply it to testing drones and robots in the real world, um, you know, but with a simulator that's trying to simulate, you know, the matrix. Uh, it's it's a really interesting uh, take on it. Next story. So uh, I want to talk about Netflix. Uh, Netflix has released uh, a tool they call Hub Commander, which... I was really confused about, to be honest, about where what space it fits in. Uh, we uh, it is a tool that is about managing your GitHub repositories uh, through Slack, and it's very tied to both of those technologies. Um, and I thought it was interesting that they have gone so narrow with it um, versus something like Hubot that GitHub has uh, released as one of their internal tools um, that, that they've had for a long time that has been about kind of being the uh, the bridge between many different uh, uh, chatting technologies, um, IRC and uh, Slack and HipChat uh, to um, be able to create your own your own robot and plug in APIs for lots of different tools. GitHub might be one of them, uh, Jenkins, things like that, so that you can create commands and do chat ops. Uh, this idea of controlling uh, your the operations and your workflow, your DevOps workflow through uh, commands in your chat, your favorite chat client or your favorite chat. Um, room uh, of choice for your business, and uh, I just I, I find it fascinating that that Netflix has decided to uh, open source a tool that's so narrow in scope and focus. Um, uh, what do you What do you guys think about this? Uh, you know, have either of you had a chat room robot uh, as part of your daily workflow? Uh, I I know uh, other than just simply reporting. Uh, I haven't used very many mini bots that I have to interact with. Uh, I know I've been in some some IRC channels and then um, I guess later HipChat or Slack that have used it more extensively. 
I know that the ASF, the Apache Software Foundation, has a bunch of tools that grant karma, and karma is, you know, the open source dollars, right? Like it's it's this 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 magical uh, um, ability to grant other people, um, you know, more power or whatever you want to call it, right? More access rights. Um, other than that, I haven't personally seen a lot of people use uh, very many interactive bots other than, you know, simple, simple queries, right? Like there's some funny things or like there's a, there's always bots to, to roll dice and, you know, very, very simple things like that. But but I think this I think this is a, a the next step. I think a lot of people are starting to do this. Uh, I just haven't had the, the chance to do anything personally. How about you, Jason? Uh, yeah. Sorry. This is where I. Um get to be like this grumpy old guy uh, get off my lawn guy <laughs> where I, it, <laughs> I, looked, I, I looked like it. i read at it i read it uh and when i got to the word chat, chat ops i just completely rolled my eyes this is I, i've only heard this buzz term in like the past few months uh what's going on with it in your opinion <laughs> well i guess the the get off my lawn aspect of it like so one i have to preface it with i try not to be that guy uh because one um like no one ever listens to that guy. Like that that guy, the get off my lawn guy, um, never has won an argument in the history of technology. So there's no point into being that. Um, so I'll just you know stand from afar and say you know good luck with that kids, right? But I I, mean, I look at that I look at chat ops I suppose is like it's it's a command line interface like that that's what it is <laughs> right. Uh, there's exactly. nothing magical beyond that. Uh, most humans don't really like command line interfaces, but geeks totally love them. I love them. I get all of my work done that way. So there's a, there's a certain level of like it's not a bad thing, uh, but I for me I look at like at their announcement and it's like hey it's it's integrated with Slack and deploy it on Docker. It just seemed like they checked a whole bunch of buzzword boxes. Yeah, uh, that got them into uh, uh, a news cycle <laughs> that 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 let someone you know that you know they got to be talked about in kind of a you know, I mean, I'm almost, it's almost like the punchline is, and come work for Netflix because we're still cool, um, <laughs> is, is my very cynical get off my lawn kind of commentary on that. Yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. Uh, I, anyway. I think this so I again, I know that. that's completely useless to most people listening to that opinion. So I, I try to, um, unless I'm asked directly <laughs> for my opinion, I, I try not to. <laughs> no, I, I think you're right in a, in a lot of aspects, uh, especially the whole the buzzword bingo, right? But, but I think... Um, you know, you mentioned the, the command line, right? So I think it's a very it's it's an easy way to mix um, like a shared terminal, basically, right? Like it, it interwoven with chat ab about the topic. So so in that regard, I, I think it's I think it's really cool. Um, so I'm not necessarily a grumpy old man about it, but I like I said, like I think it's it's has limited usefulness, right? Yeah, um, I I would agree. I, I think. I, I, it's a really good summary of the idea that this is chat, you know, this is, um, command line for non geeks, uh, you know, or people who are used to, uh, using Facebook Messenger or, uh, iMessage, uh, to, you know, or just straight up, te you know, SMS to converse with people and just saying, oh, there's a bot behind it. But really, in the end, we're just talking about command line, um, and making command line sexy again, apparently. Uh, I love the idea. I've used it. I've, I've had bots sit in rooms uh, before. Um, not in my current day job at the moment, but um, it's the kind of stuff that it's useful, especially around just like simple reporting and, and getting me, you know, uh, uh, hey, uh, what's uh, the latest status on, on something, um, you know, build or whatnot. But 
uh, I've never had it worked deep into my workflow of having it so that our entire like deploy, uh, you know, Hubot deploy uh, great latest, greatest project and had that actually deploy out to production. That's not something that I've seen end to end yet. Yeah. So to be slightly less grumpy old man, um, where I have seen, uh, I, I can't use the phrase chat ops. I can't use it, <laughs> without laughing. but, um, where it has been super useful is when there, when you do have your development team all logged in and you are doing a deploy and you have these automatic automated messages coming in, um, especially like the night before a really big release or something like that. Like it's really important that you can kind of, what happens is the, you know, the automated system comes in with a comment and then everyone else is kind of like, you know, high-fiving and thumbs upping and all that kind of stuff. It's almost like kind of watching right. the ball drop uh, on New Year's evening. Like that, right, right. there's a kind of a shared experience around whatever automated messages are coming in. Um, so that's, that's totally useful. And I guess this would be a logical extension of that. Uh, but on the flip side, I feel like, you know, every week another invitation from someone I know comes through the inbox saying, hey, here, you know, we just created a new Slack channel or whatever. And I mm. have to politely say like, you know, I, I am uh, suffering from way too many ways to distract myself these days. And yes. so, uh, you know, almost anything Slack related, um, I kind of look at with uh, hesitant uh, hesitancy. Uh, and this would probably be another one of those things. Yeah, right. Um, I've seen it abused, Slack in particular, abused as a replacement for uh, inbox bloat. Um, so that instead it's replaced with Slack channel bloat. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think what you want from these types of systems is an improvement in the signal to noise ratio. And that doesn't come with just jumping to a new technology, uh, be it going from email to Slack. Uh, it comes with fostering and structuring that uh, in a in a sane way so that you are getting as much signal out of the noise um, and ideally reducing the noise, right? And not just transferring it from one uh, channel to another. I completely agree. I know uh, my current job, we, we have a lot of Slack channels and, and I kind of, you know, I'm a semi IRC holdout, right? Um, but I think the biggest difference between the two, I mean, other than, you know, the new features that you get, the asynchronous and all this other stuff, right, um, is the fact that it's it's too easy to create multiple Slack channels. Uh, like we had one for a holiday party, which was great um, to to manage, you know, some some logistics, right? But, but things just sprawl from there. And, uh, you know, at least the IRC servers that I've been on, everything's pretty much like one or two channels. Maybe you have a public channel, maybe you have a private channel, maybe you have one specific to a project. Um, right, right. But most of the daily conversation is happening on one main channel. And now with Slack, it's like it's all over the place and like there's just it's just too threaded. So again, I think there's more, there's a lot more noise or, or maybe the content is still good, but it's happening in too many places, which is causing the whole, you know, context switching. Right. I don't know. Um, but I, I just want my one general channel. <laughs> Going back to the, the hub commander specifically. Um, yes. I, I guess, you know, these days I wear many hats. I've got open source anarchist hat. And then I've also got kind of, you know, business guy talking to business people, uh, kind of perso various personas, right? And I, I could look at Hub Commander specifically and, and like almost like the 
the idea of like everything through chat or everything through Slack specifically, right? If you yeah. put your um, CTO, CEO kind of head of risk management hat on in a very kind of boring business setting, uh, doing everything through Slack specifically kind of all of this kind of adding users, removing users, all this kind of stuff, putting it all through Hub Commander and then specifically through Slack, it makes it a way more um, auditable um, and kind of like you have a single point, a single record that you can go search. Um, right. It's basically kind of like logging for uh, the C, uh, for the, the executive suite. Um, right. That they can go and see when something was added or not or removed or whatever. Um, and it, it like, you know, for that kind of a... I, so I imagine there's even one layer above this that can kind of aggregate some of that data. But, you know, from most startups don't have to deal with like Sarbanes-Oxley or anything like that. But like there is, uh, once you get, once numbers start to get big, uh, you know, audit audit trails uh, become important. And I can see having everything go through Slack, you know, you, you remove the plausible deniability of like, oh, we forgot to turn logging on that server or whatever. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think that's a great point. Um, so uh, let's actually move on to the interview section. We're with Jason Huggins, uh, who is currently the founder of uh, Tapster. Um, he was also a co-founder in... Uh, uh, Sauce Labs and uh, Selenium, uh, so a lot of uh, presence in the testing segment of our industry. So, um, Jason, before we dive into the interview segment, though, um, I like to ask all of our guests, uh, since it's a broad topic and different people have different definitions, but how do you personally define DevOps? Right. Uh, I knew you were going to ask me that. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I wrote about this a long time ago, but I couldn't find the link. Um, but really, I actually think it's a misnomer. It's uh, it really should have been called Dev Test Ops, uh, and it yes. really is kind of a three act play. It goes from the checking in the code uh, to the source control to running all the tests in a CI server. Um, that would be the test part of Dev Test Ops, and then obviously, you know, once that goes green, uh, there is potentially an automated process to kind of push that in production, or at least kind of deploy it to some staging environment. And you can't do DevOps without the testing component to the point where I think everyone who talks about it, it's just like it's almost assumed. You can't do it without a cont continuous integration and testing, um, or at least you, you can't do it, you know, uh, risk-free. I imagine there's some really, you know, uh, very daring people <laughs> yeah. who will do DevOps uh, and deploy it right into production straight from GitHub uh, with no tests. But that probably implies you don't have a lot of users or revenue or, you know, yes. whatever. But um Kind of going back at the history of these, where these words come from, um, I you know worked for years at uh, ThoughtWorks, and that's where the Selenium project came from. And the chief scientist at ThoughtWorks, uh, Martin Fowler, he wrote a, the very famous essay about continuous integration. And um, and out of and that out of that community, you know, XP extreme programming practices, the agile community community came out of that. And really, I look at it as like. I'm totally over-answering your question, sorry. <laughs> no, this <laughs> but, is awesome. But um, it really, the, the big uh, innovation in extreme programming and Agile specifically was breaking down that silo between traditionally uh, siloed uh, develop, software development uh, parts of your team and the QA testing parts. So Agile and running tests automatically, continuous integration, that basically mean, mean, meant... Uh, developers invaded the testing space or more specifically they invaded invaded at least the testing budget um so there's a certain level of like you know developers uh you know just like there's that phrase software's uh was the mark and quote um software's eating the world there's a mm. certain level of also like developers are 
competing processes and, and departments and budgets. And so it started with Agile with developers branching out beyond development into testing. Um, and But after a couple of years, uh, there was no specific reason why the phrases Agile and continuous integration did not include uh, pushing to production. But culturally, for so many years, there was so much activity just around this whole dev test cycle that when it finally became feasible to add automated deployment to production to that whole mix, it almost felt like you needed a new word to talk about the, kind of this new add-on to it. So if nothing else, DevOps, <laughs> to very long-windedly answer your question, <laughs> it's basically the next logical step after developers breaking down that wall um, into testing. The next wall to break down is that uh, line between dev testing and production management. So I remember way back in my early early days uh, at out of college, uh, I still remember going down to the database administrator's office and kind of, you know, very, with a shaky hand, hand them uh, our list of things that we wanted to deploy into production. And we had to, you know, make sure mm. that we were very on our best behavior uh, to make sure right, that right. whatever SQL changes were going into place were, you know, past muster. And there's a certain level of basically DevOps, um, you know, there's a certain level of you can't beat them, join them. Kind of, like th basically that person is either gone uh, or they're another, just another developer um, on the team. Anyway, yeah, that no, uh, that was, I, I love your experience of it, of, of kind of how it's evolved for you and um, particularly your experience at, at ThoughtWorks. Um, that's, that's, uh, I, I love to hear about that. Um, and particularly, I'd love to hear more about the genesis of Selenium and, and actually first, am I pronouncing it correctly? Is it Selenium? Right. Or okay. Selenium? So, so um, <laughs> I... It's, it's, so it's funny. Um, I think one of my, my proud accomplishments, I guess, in life is that there is a disambiguation link in Wikipedia <laughs> for, the, for the elements, you know, for the word selenium. It's basically like, well, did you mean, you know, the software? You know, yep. there's a lot of uh, confused Brilliant. people in the world when they're, you know, you know some physics uh, students or chemistry students are kind of going to Wikipedia and they're like, what is this other thing? Uh, the, as far as the pronunciation goes, um, uh, I think I first got this question... I think it was like, so British people aren't really care uh, <laughs> about yes. this. And so I think the proper pronunciation is selenium. Um, yep. But I feel like I come across as a pretentious British person when I say selenium. Uh, mm. It's just like saying aluminium. I just can't, I can't bring myself to say aluminium. <laughs> That's so what like, I was going to bring up. Though. Right, right. So, so <laughs> I think selenium and aluminium are kind of there that you could say it that way. Uh, yep. But I feel like it feels more of a natural American accent to say selenium and aluminum. Um, but with that right. said, uh, because there's now, as far as I know, only two things with that same spelling, you could say selenium is the element and selenium is selenium the software. Is software. Oh, I like it. But okay. I, su I suspect it's kind of like, you know, uh, when you hear Linus Torvalds pronounce Linux, you're like, I'm, or, or, or the creator of, uh, GIF say it's pronounced GIF. <laughs> GIF, uh, yeah. There's a certain level of like, I don't know what side of history I am on, on the, the yep. selenium, selenium. Exactly. One of those eternal struggles of tomato versus tomato <laughs> right right yeah anyway, um, so uh, uh, yeah tell me more about the the genesis of, of uh, selenium uh, right um, so as you can probably tell I, I uh, that's way too interesting of a question <laughs> that's way too much yeah. <laughs> yes uh, so there's kind of you know the earth cooled the dinosaurs roamed the earth and then I created selenium and then okay where do I go with the story um, the um, so if I can boil it down here um, the specific thing was, um, I was the tech lead on a project. Uh, so it was at ThoughtWorks, and it's a consulting company. And uh, I was tasked, I, I was, you know, uh, 
at the time uh, maintained the database. Uh, I was the database administrator. I was the maintainer of the PeopleSoft applications for HR and accounting and you know, kind of an ERP, Enterprise Resource Planner um, admin person. Uh, yeah. I wasn't really necessarily a straight up full-time just software developer writing custom stuff. Um, anyway, um, but uh, one thing that kind of fell on my plate was like we need to figure out to, to do create a new time and expense system. The current one wasn't working, uh, and so we needed to create a new one, right? So we went out and first did a review of all the packages that were out there. Um, of course, surprise, surprise, we're at a custom consulting shop, and we you know come up with a very educated decision that we're going to write a custom <laughs> software package, which yep. of course everyone uh, supported um, to basically write it from scratch. Um, and I got really uh, excited about this. I, I saw a whole bunch of uh, problems with all the existing options for, for time and expense systems. I really thought that uh, my claim to fame was going to be this open source time and expense system that we created, <laughs> uh, which we did not. But anyway, the, the novel thing about this app, though, and this is back in, I think we started the, the effort like in 2003 um, mm-hmm. and then kind of bleeding into like January, February uh, 2004. And the, I guess the cultural interesting thing about this is uh, the state of the art for web applications um, was like they call you know request, classic request response. So if you wanted to do anything with some form that you had on your web page, you basically you clicked a button, you sent all of that information to the server. The server did all of the processing, potentially maybe adding a, a row of HTML at the bottom of some table, and then sending the entire form back. Right. That was that was the thing. And so no one right. used JavaScript because it was super flaky and uh, broken between browsers. And this is like IE6 uh, land for sure. And then like Mozilla Firefox hadn't even gone 1.0 yet. So this is like ancient history in, in web land. Right. Yeah. Um, but we had two uh, two requirements that kind of um, made things interesting. One you know, we're a bunch of you know, try to be as hipster compliant uh, as possible at all times. And so even though this was definitely still a Microsoft IE kind of world that everyone was living in. All of the hipsters who worked at ThoughtWorks wanted to make sure that we're, you know, they're using Macs and Linux and uh, Mozilla, I think, was the popular alternative browser at the right. time. Like the actual Mozilla browser wasn't, Firefox didn't even exist. So, um, or at least or it was 0. 0.8, 0. 0.9, whatever. Anyway, so we had to support two browsers. So that's kind of like requirement number one for where Selenium came from. And most of the other tools in the market, they just assumed Microsoft won the universe. There's no point in doing anything cross-browser. So what? You know, what's the point? So we'll just only make something, i.e., specific, right? So Selenium's kind of novelty at the time was that we supported two browsers out of the box. The the other thing is that the other state of the art at the time, because of that architectural, you know, assumption that you did everything on the server, m- most of the open source tools, um, you could basically like they they only really tested, uh, or they did assertions, kind of regular expression searches, things like that on the server output. Because um, mm. basically no one really did anything a dynamic uh, or, you know, Ajaxy. That This is also before the word Ajax was even invented. Right, yeah, exactly. And so, so actually it wasn't, it wasn't that long before those words were created. So what happened was we had a very specific requirement uh, to make this web app fast. And I noticed that, hey, you know, when we do some JavaScript stuff in the client without going all the way to the server, for our users, especially the new consultants that were in our new London office at the time, even though the headquarters is in Chicago, we also had uh, users uh, coming online in India and Australia. So I th- I had this idea that if we could avoid a, a round trip to the server and do things more with JavaScript, 
in the browser, that's going to be, a, it's going to lead to a faster app, a better experience. And it's going to be like, you know, high fives all around. It's going to be awesome. But the thing I was fighting was uh, that kind of like, you know, people don't get fired for doing or buying XYZ technology. The, the conventional wisdom was if you use JavaScript in the browser, that's like a career limiting move. I mean, I had very serious conversations with very smart senior developer types saying you can't like that's professional like malpractice to use JavaScript in the browser because it's yeah. going to break and it's going to be horrible. I mean, it's amazing how far we've come, but it wasn't that long ago. And so what happened was uh, we had this you know very serious debate of like, do we write our apps to the state of the art of the testing tools that we have, or do we go make the app as awesome as we possibly can and go either find or create our own testing tools to kind of match the thing that we're doing? So right. I kind of did it that other way where we kind of did it the dumb conventional way. I was still upset about like the you know the the, the time rates, the press response rates, and things like that. So I I uh, I, I, just fi I finally to put my foot down. I was the leader of the project, anyways, or of the time and expense project. And I took uh, I took a developer or two off. We took kind of a I kind of basically you know took time off from my own project to kind of go off into a corner and say, hey, let's solve. We are we're going to support two browsers. Um, Mozilla and IE, and we're going to support this crazy JavaScript stuff, no matter how career limiting move this stuff is, and we're going to come up with something. Uh, and so that was really like that. Just those core that that those two requirements ended up being kind of um, novel, unique, and uh, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. And uh, I think what happened was six months later, I went from crazy guy to, oh my gosh, uh, that's a thing. <laughs> um, yeah. When Rails came out and integrated a lot of the Ajax kind of like type ahead search and all kinds of things, uh, Gmail came out uh, again, like that 2004, 2005 timeframe. Also uh, Google Maps, I think that was the, with, with, with Rails, Maps and Gmail, when all of a sudden everyone, it felt like overnight, realized you're not crazy to use JavaScript in the browser, and if anything, it's actually the most awesome thing you could ever do. Right. <laughs> and so uh, all of a sudden, though, people were scrambling, okay, but now how do we test that stuff? And so um, uh, it, there was a certain level of like right time, right place, like, you know, coming from an environment at ThoughtWorks where like, uh, you know, everyone was creating testing tools and doing stuff and automating things. So, like it was a perfect Petri dish environment to learn and, and work in. And then you also had the broader... Uh, uh, what do you want to call it, um, market of people, of ideas that are floating around there. So I suppose like, you know, using JavaScript in the browser was kind of the chat ops of the day. I'm sure, I'm sure there are a lot of um, yes. salty Windows programmers who are rolling their eyes at whatever I was super excited about. Um, but uh, anyway, that's it. I, yeah, so so no. that's, that's, an, that was, that's, that's one way to tell the story. That, yeah. that is a great origin story. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> we, were, we were building this time tracking app, <laughs> and we right, needed a testing yeah. system. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, man, that it it brings back memories of when I was developing on the web at that time. Um, you know, using uh, the the MS uh, XML HTTP request object before we called it AJAX, and right. yeah, um, and so yeah, you're bringing back a lot of. Memories that I haven't thought about in a long time, right. and so I, I run the risk, though. Of course, you know, uh, as the as the days go by, you know, like you know, people, someone I'll think this is a fascinating story, and then someone listening to it will be like, "I wasn't even born that year" or something. So, oh. so I'll just you know, just <sighs> general 
We're so uh, old. Warning to everyone who's listening to this. It's like, hey, you know, kids, you have no idea how good you have at these days. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, hey, uh, so let's fast forward now to yes. where you're at. I'm going to skip a couple things of right. uh, kind of your career. And let's talk about Tapster because, right. right. uh, you know, I, th- I think it naturally led from what you were doing at, um, at Sauce Labs. And uh, I remember actually you started kind of talking about this as a, a hobby that you had been working on right. and you've turned it into a company. And right. So, go oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Tell, tell me more. So it actually leads from uh, how I would describe when people would ask me, like, you know, what is Selenium? Where to come from? But the way I would actually describe it for years, I would say, like, well, it's like a robot uh, that would open up a browser hmm. and you tell this robot to, you know, type in a, a web address or click buttons or type text in the fields. Like, I would say this for years. And when I would try to give it, you know, I give presentations, I have pictures of robots, like very comical robots, like literally sitting at a keyboard uh, typing text in the fields. Um, and um, I think I got to a certain point where um, I kind of wanted to test my own metaphor here um, of like, okay, if Selenium is like a robot, could I actually make a real robot that could do exactly what Selenium does? So that's where the, that's where that kind of like that thought came from. And I think, um, but it was just kind of like a random thought that I didn't, I didn't really know how to ex- actually express that. But I think w- uh, the other thing that kind of fell into place was when um, the iPhone and the Android phones have been out for a little while, and people uh, in kind of software development circles and testing in particular kind of are realizing, like, everything inside a phone, like, this is this is fundamentally different, right? Like, yeah. you now have these, you know, we, we've gone, like, decades where the only thing you had to worry about was keyboard, video, mouse, right? Like, you know, two inputs, one output, you could do screenshots. It, like, it was a very contained environment for laptop, desktop, server testing, kind of in, in your typical user interface of... Um, a browser window or a desktop screen. Right. But with mobile, you have all these gestures like, you know, shaking your phone or, you know, all these different things you can kind of do with like the cameras or uh, accepting calls and all kinds of things. And basically like the traditional ideas of how you would test a very boring keyboard, video, mouse app, it started to feel like a lot of those, um, there's huge gaps in your capabilities, what you could do. Um, and so I started kind of thinking like, you know, what, well, what, would be those things that you would use. Um, anyway, and also coming at it from a third angle, I also yeah. noticed in that time, um, you know, so I guess there's a little bit after I, I left. Uh, so I, I left Google in 2008, started Sauce Labs in 2008. I think uh, it felt like 2009 or so is when like a lot of companies were starting to get really, really serious about mobile apps and how they're going to test it, things like that. Even game developers were come on, came on day one of the iPhone, but it's like it takes a while to percolate through where I guess where I live in corporate America where you know there's budgets for testing stuff, right? Um, and I think the one thing I noticed is when I, you know, when I left Google, like they were went all in on Selenium for web testing on like you know, desktop browsers. But for mobile specifically, it was basically a new game. There weren't very sophisticated automated tools and so they actually very went very heavily on manual testing. Uh, I remember reading some kind of you know PR or white paper stuff from uh, manual testing vendors. So, so just looking at yeah. the where Google was at in 2009, 2010 with testing for mobile, they were very heavily into manual, but for web, you know, they were you know using my stuff and a whole bunch of other things like super automated. And I thought that was an interesting thing to think about. That like, what is it about manual testing that always kind of like it's it's always your thing of last. It, you can always do manual testing. You can always give a phone to an intern and say, "Hey, click these buttons <laughs> uh, yep. or follow this script." 
uh, when some new technology comes online. And so I kind of, you know, uh, I guess I'm, you know, I should have majored in philosophy in college or something like that. Like there's a certain level of like trying to get back to like core first principles about this stuff. But there's this thought where getting back to, you know, fast forwarding to Tapster, what I look at it again is this other spectrum where you have manual testing on one end and fully, uh, fully with a human, <laughs> uh, you know, classic kind of like that Verizon commercial of like, you know, taking a real person with a real phone, going to Times Square and making a phone call and doing that kind of testing. And the yeah. other end of the spectrum, you have, you know, running it in a simulator in the cloud in a virtual environment, something like that, right? And right. the way I look at Tapster is kind of like, at least I hope, uh, kind of like on the middle point of that spectrum where it's, it can be automated just like any other tool. Uh, so you can kind of uh, wire it up to your chat ops <laughs> program where you can say, Tapster, <laughs> yep. run my scripts. But because it's a, it's a robotic finger um, and you're not required, you're not tied to a low-level testing API, you can look at the screen and click a button kind of like how a manual tester would look at it. That would be right. following a script. Um, so there's kind of like you get the you get the benefits of manual testing, uh, and but you also can kind of do it in an automated environment. And, and then boiling down that manual tester, I got to this kind of metaphor equivalent of like the, you know the 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 essence of a manual tester is an eyeball and a finger. And so yeah. Tapster started as that robotic finger. Um, anyway, yeah. Well, you know, I think ha- having done automated testing for mobile um, in my career. I think the big thing that Tapster brings that, for instance, uh, that you can't do with simulator and emulator testing is it only takes you so far, right? It's like you can't simulate the right. camera or, um, you know, there are things like hitting the on off button or things like that, that um, you are unable to do when it's not on a physical device or just the app actually acts differently on a physical device. Right. So to actually be able to run on a physical device and run those, that testing against a physical device, I think gives you um, a lot of advantages. Um, right. I think especially on the Android side, I'm, I'm like two years out from the last time I was doing this, but even on the Android side, the, the um, simulator was um, r- like orders of magnitude slower than running it on a device. So you could right. Right. potentially turn through testing faster right. um, on so device. So. I, would, I would love to say that like I knew exactly what I was doing <laughs> all yeah. from the beginning. Uh, but really, it's been kind of like this very, this kind of unfurling exploration of sorts. And we're, really where it started was like, I created this robot really to kind of almost as a silly thing. Like, again, t- it really went back to like testing that metaphor. Uh, and so I, I made it, I made the very first version play Angry Birds. This was the summer that Angry Birds was super popular. Mm-hmm. And then for, you know, the kids <laughs> listening to this, that was a really popular game a couple of years ago. Um, yep. Anyway, um, <laughs> and so I really thought I would move on to my next art project after that. And what happened though, as, when I showed off this project, people came out of the woodwork and there was this weird um, vibe of like, um, like relief and like nervous, like, I don't know what you want to call it, but like very frantic conversations where mm. one of two things would happen. Either they worked in the secret robot testing lab of some uh, company. And I've, I've, and I've learned over the years that almost every company that makes anything has a secret robot lab. Um, like any device manufacturer, cars, like you name it, they have yeah. a device lab. And, and either they're like spending hundreds of thousands of dollars repurposing pick and place machines that would otherwise be making circuit boards, but they're attaching a stylus on it and you know having it just hunt and peck on a device. And they're really annoyed that they're spending so much money on these industrial robots. And I come along with this like shaky little you know 3D printed thing. Um, yep. The other one is that you have these uh, companies that they 
they had a particular testing problem. They had no idea how to solve it. They were frantically searching for something. And right at the last second, they probably they kind of decided, like, there's nothing out there. We're going to buy a box of Legos, Lego Mindstorms kit, and kind of figure it out ourselves. And then yeah. right at that moment, they, they found my thing. Um, and, uh, and so out of these conversations I've had with people, um, that's where I've, I, I've been collecting these kind of use cases of kind of hard to test with any other method kind of a thing. So yeah. I, I gave uh, a, a, the keynote at the Selenium conference in London a couple months ago where I, I the title was, you know, uh, Tapster, uh, the nuclear option. It's kind of like, you know, the, the tool of last resort. Um, like j just one example was like uh, there was a company with they're making an iPhone app, but it, it, it paired with their Bluetooth accessory. I can't go into too much detail. Right. With violating without violating confidences and things. But um their device talked over Bluetooth, and there's no Apple API for toggling on and off Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. You can you can automate anything that you want in your uh, phone, but you can't interact with the systems app. And these are right. actually former Apple engineers that were telling me this. And when they worked at, like right before they did the startup, they were working at Apple and had access to secret APIs where they could do this. But now at their startup, they couldn't do it that secret way. And so they, you know, there's like, I guess I have to take the Apple, uh, former Apple engineers' word for it that... But the, the robot was the only way to do some of these test automation interactions that they wanted to. So I think the sweet spot is where you've got your app and your phone is interacting with a local environment, either like, you know, talking to your toaster or refrigerator or your car or your, you know, IoT device or whatever it is. I think right. where I get a lot of skepticism from people who say, like, why would you use a robot for mobile testing or any kind of testing? I think a lot of those people are uh, doing mobile apps that talk to a server in the cloud and there isn't a lot of interaction there isn't a lot of Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or phone camera video kind of stuff. It's a lot of kind of data entry to and from the cloud kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, I also have um, to preface this with like, if I come off across this, like, you know, too sales pitchy. <laughs> Sorry. It is an no. open source project. All yep. the files are up on GitHub. Uh, you can 3D print the whole thing. A lot of people have done that. Um, if you kind of search for Tapsterbot on Twitter, uh, you know, occasionally people around the world uh, have, you know, printed out, made their own. Um, the whole bill of materials is there. So I definitely, you know, if, if nothing else, I kind of want to hang out with more rob robot kind of people in the world. And so one way to do this is like to make a robot, put the plans out there and then, you know, uh, let's have a party, I guess. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Um, Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you talking to us about, you know, your career and, and what you're doing now at, at, at Tapster. Um, where could our listeners find out more about what you're doing, you know, about you and what you're working on? Got it. So um, I'm not a very heavy blogger, <laughs> but um, I guess when, occasionally when I do put things up there, uh, my, my website is hugs.io, H-U-G-S.io. Um, probably the best place to follow me uh, is on Twitter. So my handle is hugs uh, as well. So H-U-G-S. Uh, makes sense since my last name is Huggins. But uh, anyway, so follow me on Twitter is probably the best way to kind of see what I'm up to. Uh, that's a great handle, Specifically, by the, the company that I'm working on, uh, the project I'm working on, that's tapster.io is the website for that. Tapster.io. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jason. I, I wish we could talk a lot longer. I mean, I have all these questions uh, that, that are just spooling through my head, and, and um, we could probably talk another hour about, well, about all these things. I think that so it's, potentially it's leads to the, uh, the thing to do, though. Yes, right. <laughs> um, so I can be found on Twitter as well, so, uh, Brian Demers, all one word. Um, but yeah, thanks again. Yeah, and I can be found on Twitter as well. Uh, I'm Jackson, J-A-X-Z-I-N. Uh, but before we go, let's leave our li listeners with something to do. 
so this is where each week we'll leave you, the listener, with something to watch, read, play, uh, try out in some other way. Uh, Brian, uh, what did you want to leave our listeners with? All right, so uh, I was traveling a bit this week, so I found a new audiobook, um, and I hadn't re- I hadn't realized that Mer Lafferty had released a new book. Um, so you can get the paper book, uh, you know, the 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 ebook or the audiobook. Um, it's called Six Wakes, uh, and I'm a huge Mer Lafferty fan. Um, she wrote, uh, I think it's called the Heaven series, if I remember right. Um, she's done a few other books, and I just really like her style and uh, all her audiobooks are, are recorded by her. So she kind of, again, you get that author's perspective on things and it just really works well for me. Cool. Uh, but this book is about six clones who wake up on a spaceship with no memory of the last, um, I think it's like 25 years or something. And there's all these ethics about clones and all this other stuff. And like, this shouldn't have happened and, you know, sail fa- uh, fail safe. Um, but it's it's great. Like, right from the first few minutes of the book, I was hooked. It goes through, again, all, a lot of the ethical problems and whatnot. Um, so I'm only about halfway through the book, so I can't speak for the whole thing. But I'm definitely hooked so far. So I highly recommend it. It's called Six Wakes, and it's by Myrtle Lafferty. Wow, the premise sounds really intriguing. Um, I, I think I'm going to have to check that out. Uh, Jason, what did you want to bring our listeners? Right. So following on a theme, I think, from uh, one of your previous episodes where it was a food-related uh, item. So uh, Tapster, yes. we just moved offices down the street. We're in the wonderful arts district of Oak Park, Illinois, which is just west of uh, downtown uh, Chicago. Uh, and so uh, Oak Park is awesome. Where we are is awesome. Um and my office, of course, is awesome. So if you ever come to visit uh, Tapster Robotics, uh, we can continue the conversation right there. But the thing to do is our next door neighbor, like we're in a new building with like five new offices or, or business spaces. And we're actually at the kind of first level retail level is where the Tapster office is. But right next door uh, is a pie shop, the Happy Apple Pie Shop. And they had their grand opening yesterday. Ooh. Um, so uh, I, I bought one of their apple pies. I think they always have at least apple pie on. Uh, as their standard menu, and then they rotate any other pies that they do like every two weeks. Um, I can now vouch that they are uh, pretty darn good. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I don't know what it is. It's like, you know, come for the robots, stay for the pie, or, you know, come for the pie, stay for the robots. But you can get kind of a two-for-one special, um, kind of check out the robot lab at Tapster, but then, you know, make sure you, you go home with uh, uh, an apple pie in your hand that from Happy Apple. So I'll, I'll send you the link to that as well. Excellent. Oh, that, wow. That's great. That's I awesome. love apple pie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sal- literally salivating. Right. So if nothing else, this. yeah, uh, you know where you should be on, uh, on March 14th, right? Yeah. <laughs> pie day. I like it. Um, awesome. So yes, yeah, so we will share that uh, as a link in our show notes. Um, so what I wanted to share is actually something that I haven't done yet that I am going to do this week, which is I am going to take a tour of Go, uh, Go being the, the language Go. Um, there is a, a really great um, uh, interactive tutorial, web-based actor interactive tutorial on the golang.org uh, site. Uh, and I will have a link in the show notes, but it's something that I will do this week because I have been, uh, I have not had any experience with Go yet, but I keep hearing um, a lot of my current and former colleagues chatting about it. So I feel like I've got to give it a try. So that's what I'm going to do. So uh, I have played with this. I think I think it was on the, on the GoLang site. It was on some site anyway. It was a few years ago, or I mean, 
I say a few years. Who knows what actual time span that was. But um, yep. it's great. Uh, it was super interactive as far as um, just enough, uh, you know, compiler, uh, you know, in the browser, right? I mean, it's, yep. it's a weird topic altogether. But um, it was great as far as, you know, stepping through some of the common Go um, syntax and all that. So, yeah, definitely check it out. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. I will do that. Great. Well, that wraps up another episode. So you definitely check us out at codemonkey.fm and send us email at feedback at codemonkey.fm and join us in our subreddit or our Slack channel. Speaking of Slack. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and come join us. <laughs> come join us, yes. So both links will be found on our website. Yes, and to be clear, uh, they are right on the website in the uh, upper right-hand corner. Um, in uh, uh, They may actually blend in visually. Uh, so if you're trying to figure out where they are, upper right-hand corner of our codemonkey.fm website. Um, and uh, if you liked uh, this episode, do us a favor and review us on your favorite podcast finder of choice, uh, iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, or wherever you found us. Uh, that would really help us get heard by more people. So um, thanks again to Jason for joining us this week. Uh, I also want to... Um, uh, share Brian's sentiment and say that I wish we had a whole nother hour to chat because uh, that was just fascinating. Um, but uh, unfortunately, we're out of time and we will see you next week.